Welcome to the Discovery Series, the sound of inspiring and remarkable research brought to you by the University of Bath. In this episode, we're bringing you three fascinating talks originally recorded at our Discovery Series live event to a packed house of university alumni and guests in central London on the 13th of November. You'll hear from researchers who are all doing amazing things in our labs right here on campus right now. Discoveries that are making a world of difference. They're introduced by Professor Jonathan Knight, our Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research. If you like what you hear, you should come along to our next Discovery Series Live. Follow us on Twitter at Uni of Bath Alumni or Facebook at Bath Alumni Community to keep updated. In many parts of our university, individuals are working together to tackle and address some of the critical issues that we face. In 2015, the United Nations set out their global sustainability goals for 2030. The global goals seek to address the global challenges we face, including those related to poverty, inequality, climate, environmental degradation, prosperity, and peace and justice. Among these goals, the UN has identified the provision of clean drinking water, good health care, sustainable living, and the conservation of life as being critical to protecting our planet and allowing all people to enjoy peace and prosperity. The projects presented by our researchers tonight provide practical solutions that could take us closer to achieving those 2030 goals. Naomi Deering is a doctoral researcher in the Department of Architecture and Civil Engineering who has worked with WaterAid Bangladesh and with the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa to improve sanitation for the 2.7 billion people around the world without access to a flushing toilet. Dr. Richard Bowman works with the University of Cambridge and Sticklab in Tanzania to deliver low-cost, open-access, critical medical technology to developing communities. And thirdly, the dream team, Professor Janet Scott and Professor Davide Mattia, work together developing an alternative to the harmful microbeads that contribute to the five trillion pieces of plastic floating in the world's seas. You will hear from each of these about the research that they are doing and how that is working to deliver practical and implementable solutions to global problems. There are so many things that we could have shared with you tonight, and you've seen some of those in previous uh, parts of this series, but there are numerous others. And I was saying to somebody just before we sat down that I believe we could operate a series like this every day for 20 days in a row, and every one would be as interesting and as, and as innovative as the one before. But I think that the three which you will hear about this evening are not only of outstanding quality, but really set uh, the research apart from the run-of-the-mill research and, and demonstrates what we as a university are looking to deliver for society. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our first researcher this evening, Naomi Deering, doctoral researcher in civil and structural engineering. Thank you very much. Um, pleasure to be here. Um, I would just like to take this quick opportunity um, 
to make a small disclaimer. If you have a slightly easily upset stomach, um, it might be a good time to uh, flick through your Twitter or Instagram or BBC News, whatever, um, because I will be talking this evening about poop, um, which I know is not a topic that most people like to share around the dinner table unless you're having dinner at my house. Um, so basically, I am looking into um, developing a synthetic fecal sludge that we can use to test drying technologies for the treatment of human waste where there are no wastewater treatment, where there's no pipe sewerage, so basically where we can't just flush the toilet and walk away. So what is the issue? The issue is poop, um, and there is a lot of it. We all poo. If you don't, I would recommend going to your GP um, because, it, yes, it's definitely an issue. Uh, so basically, we have a huge amount of poo, and um, this poo that we're dealing with is fecal sludge, and it's not the same as what we would just flush down the toilet. Fecal sludge is essentially um, excreta, which is urine and feces that are deposited into on-site on on sanitation system. Um, or OSS for short. Basically, they don't go through a sewer. It will sit in a pit latrine or um, a septic tank. You may have heard of urine diversion toilets. All of those are on um, OSS. Um, and basically, it could be mixed with black water or gray water or neither of those things. So um, how do we get rid of this fecal sludge? Um, well. A huge amount of fecal sludge, 80% actually of um, wastewater globally is deposited straight into the environment without treatment. Um, it will often be uh, deposited into open um, drains, water bodies, um, next door fields, everything. And there are a huge amount of pathogens in fecal sludge which cause serious illness, including diarrhea, which causes the deaths of over 750,000 children under five every year. This is a huge issue, and that means that it's massively important that we research ways that we can deal with this waste, easy, efficient ways that we can deal with this waste. So one of those ways um, is just to use a covered, unplanted sludge drying bed. In 2013, uh, Bureau Happold Engineering in Bath uh, trialed a, a fecal sludge drying bed in Bangladesh with Water Aid Bangladesh. Uh, basically, they came up with the drying bed on the screen, uh, covered, um, and decided that you can treat fecal sludge, very liquidy fecal sludge, um, to basically a consistency that we can take off a drying bed, so kind of horse manure, if you know what horse manure is like. It's quite clumpy if you don't. Um, so essentially, we are able to treat that within a period of about 10 days, take it off, compost it, um, and so essentially what they did was prove that sludge drying beds are a viable option to deal with waste. Um, but we don't really know a huge amount about how fecal sludge dries, about what makes it dry a certain way, what about it um, makes it dry that way. Um, so that is what this research is about. It's about finding a synthetic fecal sludge that mimics the drying properties of real fecal sludge. So just really briefly, how a drying bed works, really simple. It's just a sand and gravel filter. Um, put the fecal sludge on top, um, and then water will drain out, or it will evaporate off. 
So why not use the real stuff? We've already said there is definitely not a shortage of it. Um, but the issue is that actually it's incredibly variable um, in consistency, in quantity, in concentration, um, and it will vary from country to country. It will vary from town to town. Um, two people on the same diet, similar age, similar, you know, same sex, things like that, they will still produce a completely different um, amount of excreta, and the excreta will actually have different chemical composition as well. Um, it also depends a lot on the containment technology that you use, the climate, and we can see this here just with these, these box plots. So for three different containment technologies, so dry and wet, ventilated and improved pit latrines, and unimproved pit latrine. These um, results came from the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, and they are for one municipality, the Ethiquini municipality in Durban. So you can see that there's quite a big spread um, across all types, um, these three containment technologies. And um, we have the dry and wet VIPs have similar-ish moisture contents, unimproved pit latrine, very much lower. So, um, basically, we need a fecal sludge, um, a simulant fecal sludge. Uh, you'd be quite surprised to know that actually there's quite a lot of research that's been done in um, simulating fake poo. Um, for example, for um, nappies, um, you have to test how a nappy is going to deal with all the, all the waste. Um, so what we have is we have this literature review. Um, we have yellow is urine simulants. There were a number of urine simulants that we looked at, but actually they've been left out of this if they weren't used in um, a recipe for fresh feces or fecal sludge. Um, fresh feces recipes are in green. Um, fecal sludge recipes are in brown. And then recipes that were only used for one paper are over on the right-hand side of the diagram. Um, these three here that sort of have a hatched sort of look to them were recipes that combined urine and sludge. Um, the black arrows denote recipes that were adapted, and the red arrows denote recipes, or sorry, it's actually the other way around. Black arrows denote recipes that were the same, used by different people. Red arrows denote recipes that were adapted. Um, quite a lot of the recipes have come from this recipe here, um, which was developed by NASA to test waste processing systems in space technologies. So basically, we need a simulant to um, be easily made. We need it to be cheap to produce and made from readily available materials. And we need it to replicate the drying properties of real fecal sludge. With that all in mind, we found this recipe by the Pollution Research Group um, in uh, UKZN in Durban. And we altered the recipe slightly. So what we have is this, we remade PRG SS9 because um, we only had cotton linters available in pressed sheets, which is slightly different to the cotton linters that they used. Um, we used a different polyethylene glycol which is for rotter retention, and again, that's based on just the availability. Uh, then we adapted the cellulose component using hemp fiber, half hemp fiber, and complete hemp fiber. 
And then BM3, we use a different type of yeast for the microorganisms for reasons which will become apparent in the next slide. So um, we did all these simulants. They match reasonably well with um, real fecal sludge um, in terms of characteristics like water content, total solids, things like that. But initial tests under control conditions showed that actually um, they would foam or bubble. Um, and what we did to try and counteract that was we took out the active yeast and we replaced it with inactive brewer's yeast. This was marginally successful because um, we have a few days worth of no bubbles and then they really would just explode overnight. Um, I think it did it on purpose. I would leave one day, I would come back the next day, and this would happen. Um, so as you can see, it just ends up full of bubbles. So we still had that issue. Not only that, but if you can see here, we have a thick skin with a lot of mold on top. So basically, the sludge wasn't cracking, and we would expect real fecal sludge to crack. That obviously affects the drying of the real, the real stuff because there is a greater surface area exposed to the um, atmosphere, so then it will dry quicker. Um, and obviously, they're quite light in color um, and quite sticky consistency. So essentially, it was back to the drawing board. Um, we found a similar recipe developed by Penn et al. In just this year, which built on work done by the Pollution Research Group. Um, it used yeast extract which basically is completely inactive. It's not going to um, bubble up. It's not going to do anything. Um, so they use that to sort of represent the microorganisms in the, in the sludge. They use microcrystalline cellulose instead, and they use oleic acid instead of peanut oil. So um, we basically looked at that one again, tested again. We um, also tried the Pollution Research Group recipe with no yeast at all. Um, but again, we just kept finding it was still very light in color, still quite like sticky. It wasn't drying how we would expect it to. So we developed these four recipes, um, ND one to four, um, all four of which have compost in them. So that kind of gives them a darker color. Um, we changed other things about them. Instead of using polyethylene glycol in um, three and four, we used uh, clay for the water retention and also to increase the inorganics content. And there's a different mix of the minerals. Um, so this was actually quite reasonably successful. I cannot tell you how excited I was whenever I saw this tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny little crack. Um, it really was great. Uh, and it only happened recently. Um, so we actually did manage to have some of our samples crack. Um, whenever we dry them under controlled drying conditions. Um, and obviously, you can see that it's quite dark in color now. So it's dark brown rather than really light. Um, the consistency was a lot more similar to real fecal sludge. And this is all really um, positive news for us going forwards. So um, these are all, these are my 12 synthetic sludges. Um, you can see them upstairs later. Um, basically, uh, I honestly, I really enjoyed putting this uh, picture together because it made me feel like a real scientist because <laughs> um, I had all my little bottles. Um, probably enjoyed it way too much. But so these are the original, this recipe here is the original Pollution Research Group recipe. Then we adapted it differently 
Um, and then this is the pen et al recipe. So you can see how it gets, it does start getting slightly darker. So we were going in the right direction. And then these four are the most recently developed and they sort of merged together um, the pen et al recipe pollution research group and drew a little bit from other sources as well um, to what we have now. So all four of those uh, simulants were actually tested um, in a climate chamber under control conditions with a UV light to see how that would affect the drying. Um, and then this, uh, the ND3 was actually tested um, in a slightly larger scale drying test to see how it would dry because it seemed to be the, the best performing of the simulants. Um, so just, uh, just before I um, finish, my one of my favorite days, I also enjoy Pancake Day. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite days is coming up. Uh, so next Monday um, it is the 19th of November and it's UN World Toilet Day. This is a day that's dedicated basically to um, taking action to ensure that everyone has access to a safe place to go to the toilet by 2030. It is a absolutely insane that more people in the world have a mobile phone than have somewhere safe to go to the toilet. And this is despite a real amount of progress being made in improving access to sanitation. There's still four and a half billion people live without a safe toilet and 892 million practice open defecation. This is incredibly bad. Um, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for human health, and especially if you are a woman or a girl, you are exposed to the risk of not just attack by wild animal, but rape when you um, need to go to the toilet late at night at the edge of your village. So basically to get involved with this, to do our part, the university has been involved with toilet twinning um, and we are aiming to raise enough money to twin 25 toilets and become a toilet twinned university. Toilet twinning essentially involves raising 60 pounds, sending it to toilet twinning and they use that 60 pounds to build a latrine, to implement um, hygiene programs and improve access to clean water as well. Um, so if you'd like to get involved in either of those things, um, if you'd like to get involved with the university's effort, um, we have a donate page. Um, if you'd be interested in twinning your toilet at home or in your place of work anywhere, um, just come chat to me afterwards. Um, both World, UN World Toilet Day and Toilet Twinning have their own web pages and stuff, so you can check that out later as well. Thank you very much for your attention. So I'm just going to introduce um, Dr. Richard Bowman. Thank you. Uh, how to follow that? <laughs> uh, so um, I uh, also spent a lot of time looking at things um, even smaller than these tiny bottles of, of synthetic poo. Um, and uh, so my thing is microscopes. Uh, I've called this, called this talk robotic microscopy for everyone. Um, I'm going to pull out the different words. Uh, so I thought I'd start with microscopy for everyone. Uh, why does everyone need a microscope, you ask? Uh, well, microscopy for me is quite literally the lens through which we discovered vast tracts of science. Um, it's how we first saw the structure of a cell. Um, it's how we learned about Brownian motion and the existence of molecules. I think microscopes are amazing, but 
I probably don't need to convert myself. Um, I think one of the most convincing arguments that everyone needs microscopy is this guy. Um, this is the ring stage of a plasmodium parasite, um, which is what gives you malaria. Um, and one of the best ways to determine if you have malaria is to take your blood, to spread it out in a very thin layer on a slide, uh, and to look inside your cells. So these, uh, these sort of big cloudy gray things in the background, they're about 10 millionths of a meter across, um, maybe a tenth of the width of one of your hairs. Uh, these are the red blood cells. And inside one of the red blood cells lives the plasmodium. Um, and it, it will live there, and it's very hard for your immune system to detect it because it's inside the cell. Uh, and that's what makes malaria quite hard to get rid of. Um, so as we make progress to get rid of malaria with bed nets, with vector control, with better medications, actually being able to diagnose it becomes more rather than less important. When everybody had malaria, if someone shows up at your clinic with a fever, you can give them anti-malarials and send them home again and sleep easy at night knowing that statistically you almost certainly did the right thing because they almost certainly had malaria um, because everyone has malaria. But as the incidence starts to drop, you might now, if you just give someone anti-malarials and send them home again, you might find out that it wasn't malaria giving them the fever. You've actually sent them home with a bunch of expensive and useless tablets. And if you're lucky, they'll come back in a week still sick. And if you're not lucky, they won't come back in a week. Um, so one of the really exciting things with the projects I'm involved in is that we have an opportunity to make high-quality, detailed malaria diagnosis more easily available. Um, that's not really my background. Uh, I always feel slightly fraudulent talking about biology. I'm not a biologist. I'm a physicist. Um, and where this project began uh, really was, was looking at uh, totally dead inert samples. So what you see here is a picture of some nanoparticles. These are tiny, tiny little balls of gold. Um, I know they look red and green there, which is all very, very Christmassy, which is definitely not okay in November. Um, <laughs> These are, these are tiny gold nanostructures, and, uh, and you can see they look like red uh, donuts with a little green blob in the middle. Um, and what I've shown you there is a lovely representative image of four of my nanoparticles. Um, and that's the sort of image that I might put in my publication and say, you know, here you go, this is what they look like. But actually, if we're being really careful about it, when we're, when we're working at our best, we want to think, is this picture really telling the whole story? Because that's what I see when I look down my microscope, right? In that field of view in the microscope, which is, this is probably about one hair's, hair's breadth across, so about 100 microns or so. There's a lot more than four nanoparticles. And if you look closely at this image, you'll see they're not all exactly the same. Um, and so if I want to study these, well, you, you have two options. Um, so we tried option one, which was we hired a postdoc. The postdoc's name was Bart. Uh, we put Bart in a lab with a microscope and a slide with a few thousand nanoparticles on it. And we said, right, Bart, measure the sample. 
Um, uh, and so after about a week, he had characterized a hundred of them, um, and he was starting to look a bit sad. Uh, and, and after the weekend, he'd, he'd done maybe 20 more, and he was looking even sadder. And at the end of the second week, he was about ready to quit, and we tried buying him a beer, but it didn't work. Um, because ultimately, as humans, we're really not all that keen on boring, repetitive tasks, um, especially when they're difficult and require a lot of concentration. And the sad thing is, even this image isn't really representative, because actually what I want to do is zoom out again. Um, and so this image is now maybe four times as big again. You can see there's even more particles in there, and there's no way I'm going to measure them all. Um, so this is why I reckon what we really need is robotic microscopy, because actually we invented computers for a good reason, which is that they don't get bored, and they don't get tired, and they don't need to sleep or eat, and they don't complain if you ask them to do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and for a lot of applications, this is very useful. Um, in microscopy, it's very easy to think microscope. Well, it's about seeing small things. So it's about optics. Um, a microscope, ultimately, is a bunch of very precisely shaped pieces of glass that take a picture of something very small and make it bigger. And that's true. Uh, but I've highlighted the optics in this microscope. Um, there are a number of very precisely shaped pieces of glass, and they're expensive and difficult to produce. Actually, most of the optical path is just, is just space uh, through which the light needs to pass. But by weight, the optics make up barely 1% of the microscope. By cost, OK, it's a bigger fraction, but actually it's probably still less than a tenth. A huge proportion of this microscope is dedicated to taking the thing that I want to look at and putting it in the right place and holding it there. I would say, actually, most of a modern microscope is a mechanical device, not an optical device. Um, even more important than moving your sample around to find the thing you want to look at is bringing it into focus. If I'm even a millionth of a meter away, from the right focal position, my image is worthless. Um, and so making sure that my sample is in exactly the right place is really critical. Um, and so there are lots of projects that have created some really cool, uh, nifty ways of making a microscope for almost nothing. Um, and they rely on a highly trained thumb and possibly a piece of blue tack to get your sample in the right place. Um, now, I, I spent four years doing a PhD in an optical tweezers lab, and it was a year before I had a motorized translation stage. I have some highly trained thumbs, and I'm very good at focusing with them. Um, but I promise you, it is much, much easier if you have the right mechanism. But the right mechanism is hard to produce, right? There is a reason that this microscope costs £30,000, and it's not just that uh, Olympus is a very profitable company, right? This is a well-made piece of equipment sold for actually a not totally unreasonable price. It's just really hard to make these mechanisms well. Um, so we are now in the age of the RepRap, um, another fantastic uh, piece of technology to have come out of the University of Bath. Um, and uh, if I persuade the video to play... Ooh. 
There we go. Excellent. Um, we can now create wonderful structures out of plastic uh, using a 3D printer. Um, this is great fun. But if I tried to 3D print the microscope I showed you in the first picture, it would be very, very rubbish. Um, if you want to make something out of metal that moves in a, in a straight line, usually you machine two parts. They fit over each other very exactly so they don't wobble. They're very smooth and very hard, so you can slide it up and down without too much friction, uh, and it won't wear out. That's fine. But this isn't precisely dimensioned because it's made on quite a cheap machine. It's not made out of a hard material, and the surface isn't smooth. So if you print a conventionally engineered microscope, you can make it work, but not very well. Um, instead, what we do is we bend the plastic. We turn the fact that we're working with a soft material to our advantage. And actually, if you engineer that bending in the right way, then you can make very, very fine motions remarkably accurately. Um, and so this allows you to convert a microscope from something that uh, is very heavy uh, and very expensive into something that is pretty small, uh, actual size. Um, that means you can have lots of them. You can do your experiments in parallel. Uh, you can take them to new places. You can put them in new places. Instead of building an expensive and not very good incubator around your expensive microscope, you can have a very small and cheap microscope that you put into your incubator and because it's the incubator you're using already, it's probably much better than the one that you'd build around the microscope out of some Perspex. Um, making them cheap also means you can use them in schools for educational work. They're essentially, on the scale of a well-funded lab, disposable, so you can take them into your biohazard area. Um, and we can use them for things like malaria diagnostics without worrying that we are taking a finicky, expensive piece of equipment somewhere that it's going to get dusty and broken in about a week. Um, and lastly, we can share the designs for this. Anyone can print one. Anyone can tweak it and then share their improvements with me. Um, we've seen this work amazingly well for open source software, and we really hope we can do the same with science hardware. So uh, a few things we're doing with it. Um, one of the things you can do is watch bacteria grow. Um, and actually, if you're interested in whether or not your treatment of the fecal sludge has worked well and protected your water supply, um, you want to, to see if there are bacteria there. You usually do this by growing the bacteria. Um, and that usually is an overnight job to make them grow to colonies big enough to see. Um, here, we can see them after only a few hours using the microscope. Uh, because you can see them when they're still much smaller. Um, and so WaterScope is uh, one of the ways we're trying to take this technology to the world um, in the form of a, an easy-to-use, quite well-automated water test that does exactly the same sort of incubation test that's done at the moment, but much faster and with some computer assistance. We're also, coming back to the picture I showed at the start, uh, working with Ifakara Health Institute in Tanzania to um, develop a, an automated microscope that can scan over your blood smear, find the parasites, maybe help identify cells that look like they might have a parasite, um, and generally improve not only how many cells, uh, sorry, how many patients one technician can diagnose in a day, 
but um, help them do that more consistently, help to train them better, um, and help gather useful data on how the disease is progressing. We've even tried to make smaller movements than you need for a microscope. Um, if you come and have a look upstairs, we can show you our fiber aligner that's capable of, uh, of making steps that are around 10 nanometers, um, which should allow us to do some really exciting micromanipulation. Um, and lastly, I, I touched on this being open source hardware. Um, one of the joys of that is that I can send the designs to anywhere, and I really mean anywhere. So there are places in uh, Tanzania that we work with quite closely, and also in Kenya, where they have locally produced 3D printers based on the, the RepRap design um, that came out of Bath now about 20 years ago um, and has exploded across the world. And these guys can now make you one of our microscopes, which I just find incredibly exciting, um, especially when they're doing it out of plastic that they've recycled locally, um, which is still a work in progress, but I have seen a microscope printed in Nairobi with plastic that they've recycled there. Um, and with that, I will put up the names of, uh, I hope, most of the people who have contributed to this project over the last few years. Um, thank you all very much for listening uh, and hand over to Professor Janet Scott. Thank you, Richard. Well, I get to finish it off. Um, there's not going to be any poo. There's not going to be any printing. Well, there might be something not far off printing. And we're going to do a double act on this. It'll be me and my colleague, Davida Matir. We're going to talk about taking things from nature and turning them into something that we use every day. So everyday products. There's a whole list of people there, and the one person's name is in parenthesis because James Coombs, Coombs O'Brien was a PhD student that worked on this topic and has now gone off to work for Dyson. So depending on how we feel about our PhD students, we're either going to buy Dyson products or we're not going to buy Dyson products. I, I'm going to buy Dyson products, promise. So plastics. We've heard a lot recently about plastics in the news. It's appeared all over the place. But what we tend to see is we tend to see images of plastic pollution. And everybody's going, well, we need to stop using plastics. We need to get rid of them entirely. I've seen some quite strange comments on the topic. But in fact, you think about a world without plastic water pipes. Or, you know, if I have a hard hat, I'd, I'd rather it was made of plastic than something really heavy, and I'd rather it lasted for a long time. Similarly, roof sheeting. So plastics are great for things that last for a long period of time and things that can be recycled. They're not so great if they end up here. So plastics in our ocean, and we've seen this again and again on the news recently, are not such a great idea. And there are lots and lots of sources of these, and one of them is you may not realize, one of them you may not realize, but you may in fact have used them today. So we use quite a lot of plastics in single-use consumer products. Single-use consumer products like plastic bags, certainly, but we are starting to address that. It interests me that we've only started to address that in the UK now. I come from South Africa, and a charge for plastics bags was introduced 20 years ago. It's made quite a big difference there. So a little bit slow to learn some lessons sometimes, but hopefully we can learn this one more quickly. So we've been using for many years plastics in very small particles called microbeads in rinse-off products. You may have used an exfoliating face wash or body wash to make you glow and look more gorgeous. It may have contained plastic particles, which, of course, go straight down the drain. 
You can't recycle them, and quite frankly, I'd rather not reuse them if we can possibly avoid it. So they come in all sorts of products, and they come in products you may not even have recognized contain things like this. Um, they're added sometimes to make the product feel smooth on your skin and spread nicely. And most of these just end up going into the waterways in some form or another. There's some values up on the screen, which I've put up as a clip from a report, a UNEP report, uh, because this isn't our work. We haven't determined how many microbeads are out there. But you can see some rather large values there. Tons and tons of microbeads used across Europe. Those are values from 2012, which is when this report was put together. They have changed, and they are changing, but you can see that it's quite a lot of microplastic. In an exfoliating microgel, you might have been worrying about what to do with that plastic bottle. Perhaps you should have been worrying a little bit more about what to do with the stuff in the plastic bottle. Because these particles are so small, they can escape wastewater treatment plants. The so wastewater treatment plants have filters in them. The filters are there to capture any solid matter that would otherwise go out with the treated wastewater. But these particles are very, very small, and if you used a filter that was fine enough to gather them, you'd slow down the passage of things through your wastewater treatment plant so badly that it would come to a stop. So when things escape the wastewater treatment plant, where do they end up? Well, they can end up in the ocean. This is a genuine image of Cape Town, where I lived for many years, and it's partly an excuse to put up a beautiful image. And <laughs> um, This is actually a genuine plume, from a, from a wastewater treatment pipe. It is purely treated, perfectly treated water. You could drink it if you didn't mind the little particles that are in it. But you can see there is particulate matter in it. I'm not suggesting those are all microbeads by any stretch of anyone's imagination, but some of them are. And I'd rather not be adding to those beautiful white beaches with some plastic microbeads as well. More than that, things in the ocean tend to get eaten by things in the ocean. And there are people that measure, and we're back to the poo story again, there are people that measure what is in fish fecal matter. Not us, I should add. And you can see that there have been microplastics detected in fish fecal matter. So fish are eating them. And what do we eat? Well, we also eat fish. So I'd kind of rather have my seafood without added microplastics if possible. These are another paper, not ours, that show various organisms that are, are present in the oceans that consume microbeads. So sensibly, in the UK and many other countries, we've done something about this. Microbeads have been banned in many places in the world, and the UK has banned them in all rinse-off products. In all rinse-off products. That's not the same as all products. And it's not the same as banning them everywhere in the world. So this is quite an interesting image that shows places where bans either are in effect or will come into effect very shortly. And you can see there's a heck of a lot of the world that's not covered. And it doesn't cover all products. You may not know this, but that uh, stuff you put on your face to make you look younger, to fill in some of the cracks, to even out the color, may well have contained plastic microbeads. Similarly, your paints may contain plastic microbeads. They're used as polymer fillers in, in uh, various polymer products, like the windscreen of that golf cart. You add a plastic microbead to that, particularly a core shell particle with a rubbery center, and you create a nice impact-resistant uh, piece of polymethylmethacrylate, which is transparent. They're also used, interestingly enough, to take the paint off aircraft. Now, you might wonder why you'd do that. Why wouldn't you just sandblast? If you're sandblasting, why not just sandblast? And the answer is that if you use a particle that is not even in shape, size, and weight, 
you start to affect, damage the surface of the thing that you're sandblasting. And aircraft, of course, are very dependent on having very smooth surfaces. So very large quantities of blasting media can be used to strip paint off aeroplanes. The UK, US military sorry, estimated that about 680 kilograms of plastic microbeads are used for each, paint stripped, uh, each plane stripped of paint. So what's the problem? The problem is that we're not always matching the material to the product lifetime. So we're talking about single-use or at least very few-use products here, very few lifetimes of use. And we make a lot of these materials out of polymers that are, first of all, made from fossil oil. So we're bringing fossil carbon up and turning it into a plastic. And they're made of things that last for a very long period of time. So polyethylene is the same thing that your milk bottles are made of, and you know that those don't degrade very quickly. Polymethylmethacrylate is a polymer that may be used to make a nice shiny microbead for cosmetics. And we're proposing you could make these out of nature's most abundant polymer called cellulose. If the product only has a single use, then you only need the materials in that product to last for as long as the product lasts. Once it goes out, you want it to disappear. But you don't want it to disappear before that. Right? I've got a bottle of shower gel and it's rotting on the shelf and starting to turn into some of that sludgy stuff that you were showing us. That's not something I want to have on my shelf, is it? So what do we do? Well, we can't use water-soluble polymers because the types of products we're talking about are largely made in formulations containing large amounts of water. And not too surprisingly, as is often the case, nature's already figured out the solution for us. If you go outside and look at the plants, perhaps not quite here, but if you were in Bath and you went outside and looked, looked around you, you'd see large numbers of trees. Most of those contain, all of those, in fact, contain significant amounts of cellulose. And cellulose is the polymer that holds plant cell walls together. There's lots of it. There's lots of it produced annually. It's highly renewable. And trees tend to be relatively robust things. But when they fall, they degrade. So nature's worked this one out. There is a way to keep this polymer operating until you don't need it anymore. And these are the things that are doing that for us. Fungi degrade cellulose. Fungi put out enzymes, generically called cellulases, which break down cellulose into the sugar that it's made of as their fuel. Which brings us to what cellulose actually looks like. And on the right-hand side of the screen, you can see an image of cellulose, which is a homopolymer of glucose. It's a really interesting stuff, because you know that glucose is highly water-soluble. But turn it into a polymer that actually forms beautifully self-recognizing polymer chains, it becomes extremely robust and water-insoluble. There's lots of it. So have we got the problem solved? Well, we haven't. And the reason we haven't is that it's difficult to process that cellulose. We've said that it's not soluble in water. It's also not soluble in many other things. And it doesn't melt. So we can't just melt it and form it into something else. Fortunately, though, it does dissolve in a strange class of compounds called ionic liquids. And ionic liquids are salts that are liquid. Right? It's there in the name. It turns out that you can dissolve cellulose, you can form it into something else, and you can recover it and make it hard again. So what we do is we make droplets of the cellulose solution. We put a lot of effort into understanding how this works, why it dissolves, what it dissolves in, and so on, which I won't bore you with any more than that. But you can make droplets of the cellulose solution that are stabilized by a surfactant in an oil in this case. Then you can do something called phase inversion, which is actually just adding an antisolvent like water or ethanol, some of which we were drinking this evening. In fact, we were drinking a mixture of the two. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the next bit of dilute yeast excreta. And what that, uh, yeah, it doesn't sound so good when you think of it like that, does it? Yeah, all right, it doesn't matter. I don't mind. 
And the antisolvent also extracts the ionic liquid in the solvent, and you can take that and recycle it. And you need to recycle it because otherwise you're just taking one problem and creating another. And at this point, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Professor Davida Matir, because this requires engineers to actually do this. It's easy to make big beads, and you might see a demonstration of that upstairs if you wander up with your drink in your hand and talk to Kieran, who is one of the PhD students working on the project. He'll be able to show you. But the beads used in cosmetics are a 1,000 times smaller than the ones you'll see Kieran making. In fact, possibly even 2,000 times, because I think his are going to be big. And you need to make them in a very, very narrow size range. So, Davida, tell people how you do it. Okay, so uh, good evening, everyone. So as Janet mentioned, uh, the, um, the, num the, the amounts, the quantities of microbeads that are used in the cosmetics industry and other industries are very large. And so if we want to make uh, an impact and replace uh, plastic microbeads, we need to be able to produce cellulose microbeads at quantities that match those coming from uh, um, fossil fuels and also at a price that is competitive with those coming from fossil fuels. Uh, they, perhaps the cost might be slightly higher, but not too far away that it becomes impossible for companies to, to replace them. And so we have developed, start understanding uh, the chemistry that allows the production of microbeads, which Janet uh, just explained, we work together to develop a process that can be scaled at an industrial level to produce tons of microbeads uh, per year. And the idea is to uh, multiply the production of beads using a membrane. So this, uh, you see in this, uh, you have a yellow is the oil, the, the purple is the cellulose solution, and that gray dotted area is a membrane. Imagine you have a tube, uh, and the, the walls of the tube are actually porous. They are made of millions and millions of pores. And uh, uh, we have actually about a million pores per centimeter squared. From each pore, you can produce a single droplet. And so this process can be done in continuous, so it can be done 24-7 for uh, 365 days a year. And you're producing millions of droplets per, uh, essentially, uh, minute. And so there is an animation that I hope helps uh, explaining what we're going to do. Yeah, so from each pore of a membrane, we are producing one droplet of cellulose solution. And then we do, as Janet mentioned, the phase inversion. So each droplet of cellulose solution becomes a cellulose microbead. And we can make these membranes, they are about a meter long, scaled up. We use much smaller ones in the laboratory. They're about a centimeter in diameter. And as I said, there's about a million pores per centimeter squared. So each membrane can produce millions and millions and millions of uh, uh, beads. Each bead weighs very, very, very little. So we need to be producing uh, a lot to reach, to make tons per year, obviously. Okay, so this is one of the uh, rigs that we have uh, uh, in the laboratory. And that membrane, with this, I said we use a small one, is actually this object here. So it's about uh, 15 centimeters long. 
one centimeter in diameter, as I said. And this allows us to produce uh, actually grams of the material. We, we are kind to our students, so we don't make them work 24 seven. Uh, and so we can't produce that many particles, but within a working day, we can make grams of the, of the beads. And that, those actually amount to quite a large volume because they are very, uh, uh, very low density, they're very lightweight. And these are some images of the uh, cellulose solutions. And this is one of the cellulose beads. A key aspect, as Janet mentioned, is, is not just making the cellulose beads, but to make them consistently. Because the, that nice uh, feel of a smooth uh, uh, surface that on cosmetics or the exfoliation that comes uh, uh, from the presence of the beads, the effects will change if the beads are larger or bigger, or if the beads are not spherical but elongated, or if their surface is smooth or rough. All of these have a lot of, uh, will have effects on the feeling that the product uh, gives uh, to, to consumers. Furthermore, you might want uh, beads that are opaque or they are transparent, and again, they give you different effects on, uh, uh, for example, on the, on the face. When you use cosmetics, it can make face radiant, or it can cover, for example, some uh, imperfections. And again, you want different properties. And so the ability to control uh, all of the production uh, uh, parameters allows you to produce beads in large scale with very controlled uh, properties. And all of these are all the parameters that uh, we can modify and we can control. And all of them come from an interaction of slightly modifying the chemistry and adapting the process and the chemistry together to obtain uh, the desired uh, feature that we want. Um, as Janet mentioned last year, uh, excuse me, uh, in early uh, this year, there was a ban, the UK enacted a ban on uh, um, the use, of, excuse me, last year, uh, a ban on the use of microparticles. Now, we published uh, a main paper about this technology uh, more or less at the same time the ban came out. I'd like to say that we did it on purpose, but actually it's more or less it was really by chance. And uh, something uh, uh, really incredible started happening. Uh, as the, the companies, even though they knew about the ban, they haven't really found uh, satisfying alternatives to plastic microbeads. And so Janet and I started receiving calls from uh, cosmetic companies and uh, ingredient manufacturers saying, can you send me 100 kilos next Tuesday? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the first one comes out, he said, oh, sorry, no, we can only make 10 grams or 5 grams. And after probably the 20th call, we started realizing that perhaps we need to do something about this. And, uh, and in fact, uh, what happens after several months of thinking how we can do it, trying to optimize the process, we actually created a startup company that looks to commercialize this technology, which is called Nature Beats. And we are now working to scale up the process that we made in the, the uh, laboratory uh, to reach a point where we actually we can make uh, hundreds of kilos and tons to give to ingredient manufacturers and cosmetic companies to replace uh, plastic microbeads. So this is very exciting. It's all very new for us. Uh, and it's moving at a very fast pace. 
primarily driven by the needs of companies to replace uh, these uh, uh, samples, uh, sorry, the, the beads, the plastic ones, which they haven't been able to do so far. At the same time, there are lots of other products uh, that use plastic microbeads that are not yet, uh, uh, whose use is not yet banned, but we hope it will be soon. And in any case, even if they are not, we want to replace because of the effects on the environment. An example which you will recognize is uh, um, the wonderful smell that comes from uh, uh, laundry detergents uh, after we wash our clothes. Actually, that uh, perfume comes from uh, uh, tiny amounts contained in plastic microcapsules that are stable when they are in the container of your laundry detergent. When they go into the washing machine, the, the shear, the abrasion uh, with the clothes and the water breaks those capsules and the, wonder, the perfume is released and our clothes smell nicely. However, that plastic, broken plastic capsule again goes down the drain, ends up in the oceans. Um, other aspects, for example, also micro sponges are made of plastic, so they are, they're actually squishy and they also find a number of consumer products. They're also made of plastic. So as we, we are working uh, as part of uh, EPSRC funded project to replace, to find ways to replace those plastic uh, micro sponges and micro capsules with sustainable alternatives. And we have a number of uh, uh, technology partners, Unilever and Croda, and uh, uh, also in um, Micropore, which is a um, manufacturer of components for industry so that we actually make it easier for the large consumer companies to actually adopt our technology. And with this, I'd like to say thank you on my behalf and, and, and Janet's, uh, and uh, I think we have finished. Thank you very much. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about discoveries from the University of Bath, or for more great events for university alumni and friends, join us on Twitter at Uni of Bath Alumni or at the Facebook Bath Alumni Community. Thanks for listening.